Occasionally, creative giants collaborate and create what famously becomes their magnum opus. Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro did it with Raging Bull. Carol King and Lou Adler did it with Tapestry. Hell, Stanley and Jack Kirby did it a bunch of times. And for director Spike Lee and actor Denzel Washington, Malcolm X just might be their zenith, their pinnacle. This 1992 adaptation of the book, the autobiography of Malcolm X, is seen by critics and fans alike as Spike and Denzel's finest work together. On the podcast, Adrian and I cover the making of Malcolm X, including how Academy Award winner Norman Jewison was originally set to direct, the budget problems the film had, and the famous people who generously came to its rescue, Malcolm X's cast featuring Angela Bassett, Delroy Lindo, Al Freeman Jr., Christopher Plummer, and more, as well as the many actors over the decades who have portrayed Malcolm X on the big and small screens. I'm Swain Hunt. Adrian and I didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us as we recorded our 30th anniversary tribute to Spike Lee's 1992 epic, Malcolm X. Assalamu alaikum. How do you feel? Who do we want to hear? Malcolm X. Are we going to bring him on? Yes, we're going to bring him on. Well, let us hear from our minister, Minister Malcolm X. Let us bring him on with a round of applause. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that I charge the white man. I charge the white man with being the greatest murderer on earth. I charge the white man with being the greatest kidnapper on earth. There is no place in this world that that man can go and say he created peace and harmony. Everywhere he's gone, he's created havoc. Everywhere he's gone, he's created destruction. So I charge him. I charge him with being the greatest kidnapper on this earth. I charge him with being the greatest murderer on this earth. I charge him with being the greatest robber and enslaver on this earth. I charge the white man with being the greatest swine eater on this earth. The greatest junkard on this earth. He can't deny the charges. You can't deny the charges. We're the living proof of those charges. You and I are the proof. You're not an American. You are the victim of America. You didn't have a choice coming over here. He didn't say, black man, black woman, come on over and help me build America. He said, nigga, get down in the bottom of that boat, and I'm taking you over there to help me build America. Being born here does not make you an American. I'm not an American. You're not an American. You're one of the 22 million black people who are the victims of America. You and I, we've never seen any democracy. We ain't seen no democracy on the, the cotton fields of Georgia. There wasn't no democracy down there. We didn't see any democracy on the streets of Harlem, in the streets of Brooklyn, in the streets of Detroit, in Chicago. There no democracy down there. No, we've never seen democracy. All we've seen is hypocrisy. We don't see any American dream. We've experienced only the American nightmare. Sir, did you check out all of the uh, interesting character actors and faces that you've seen in, in film and TV shows over the years popping up in this movie? Oh, yeah. They're definitely present in there. I mean, just, 
you know, Albert Hall, uh, Ernest Thomas. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's it's a, it's almost a list of like, hey, hey, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. but even if you go be go beyond that, like uh, Michael Imperioli from The Sopranos as the reporter, yeah. Oh, like, look at Christopher. <laughs> yeah, look at Christopher. And then uh, you got uh, David Patrick Kelly as the teacher. Yes, uh, Sully. Uh, Sully. Uh, <laughs> Come on and play. <laughs> what was his? What was his name in uh, in uh, Forty Eight Hours? Oh man, damn, Luther! It was Luther. Luther. It was Luther. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then Marion from Raiders of the Lost Ark. As yes, Karen Allen. <laughs> I mean, right, oh, come on, Marion. Damn. Try to break up the black family. <laughs> yeah. Showing up as defects, yo. <laughs> <laughs> but Dang. you also had Peter Boyle as the cop later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had uh, Debbie, Debbie Mazar, who's a character actor that you see show up in, in quite a few things. She was one of the um, she was one of the uh, girlfriends that was with uh, Malcolm's gang, Robin gang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she was Spike Lee's character, Shorty. She was his girlfriend, Peg. That's right. That's right. Uh, then you have Veronica Webb, uh, the former uh, model slash writer, as one of the uh, the concubines of uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. She sure was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, what was, I'm trying to think, was there another one? Like you said, there were just bunches of them. And it's it's always interesting when you're looking at a movie that's 20, 25, 30 years old, and you have these actors, these character actors who have these solid, you know, steady careers. They're just going to show up in everything. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like they just even, oh, this was the big one. This was the big one. And I didn't even catch it until I started doing my reading. What's that? Wendell Pierce is one of the assassins. No. Yes. No way! Really? Yes! Yes! Damn! Cause, cause, cause I caught Giancarlo Esposito, and there's another actor, um, Leonard Thomas, that you've seen in everything. But Wendell Pierce, man, that must have been pre-bunk, pre. pre- <laughs> yeah, he was so skinny, I didn't recognize him until I read, and I was like, Wendell Pierce, who was he? Yeah. Then I, I was like, oh my God, he was one of the guys. Remember the guy who was sitting in the back? He's the one who yelled, hey, nigga, t- get your hand out my pocket. I think that was him. Oh, snaps. Dang. <laughs> so that was just crazy, 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 crazy. But man, this has never been one of my favorite Spike Lee movies. Oh, it's my favorite. Uh, but mm. it is by far, and this kind of goes back to our conversation before about uh, Carpenter. Yeah. It is absolutely his best film. Mm, it's his opus. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is really the, the, you know, his epic tale where you have, as you were describing on that episode about the thing, where you have his skill set as a director, uh, Ernest Dickerson's skill set as a, as a cinematographer. Yeah. Uh, Robbie, uh, Robbie Reed as the, uh, the casting director, killing it. Uh, all the actors bringing it. Denzel in peak form. Oh, man. Angela Bassett in peak form. Pre-Tina Turner, What's Love Got to Do With It, peak form. And just, everybody's just great, man. Even down to, I don't know the actor's name, even down to the actor who played uh, uh, Baines' son, who was Raj on uh, What's Happening? Yeah, Ernest Thomas. 
Ernest Thomas. Dad, you mentioned Ernest Thomas earlier. I didn't know his name. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, everybody was just was just wonderful, man. Just wonderful. Oh, man. And and it's and it's a str- and it's the strength of Spike Lee's direction that he's always been so adroit with ensemble cast from the outset in his filmmaking. Like he seems very much comfortable with ensemble cast and mm-hmm. just he just handled all 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 of the elements so wonderfully. And it's and it's amazing how how faithful the movie is to the actual autobiography, you know, of Malcolm X to the book itself. You know, and um, I, I just thought I just thought it, it was very well made. Um, you, you can sense there was intent behind it. And not only that, this came out in 92, which meant that production started probably in 91, if I if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. Around that time, you do have this um, this whole climate of, you know, um, Afrocentrism starting to rise and culminating in um, the spring of 92, not only with, you know, just the climate of, you know, a, a renewed sense of black power, but also with the uh, riots, the L.A. riots as well on um, April 29th, 1992. You know what I'm saying? So it's so it's in the air. So every so everything was right for this to really, really um, set the world on fire, so to speak. No pun intended. Yeah, you know? I was going to say quite literally uh, in <laughs> yeah. South Central Los Angeles. Yeah, man, the uh, the X hats that eventually became really popular, uh, lots of uh, red, green and, and, and black and mm-hmm. in terms of color schemes, jackets. Oh, yeah. Uh, cross colors, you know, uh, people wearing, you know, Afrocentric jewelry and whatnot. It was very, very big in the early, early mid 90s. And um, as a matter of fact, Spike Lee tells a story that when they were going to Los Angeles with a rough cut of the movie, they're flying over it and they see all the smoke and the fires and they're like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And then when mm-hmm. they get there, they realize, you know, this is kind of pre-internet, so to speak. You know, then they realize, OK, you know, uh, South Central L.A. is burning, you know. Like you said, a splendid movie and it was definitely of its time and at the, at the right time, at the right time to uh, to to come out. But it was released in November of 1992. Mm. And. Obviously, direct, written and directed by Spike Lee and stars Denzel Washington as Malcolm X, a.k.a. Malcolm Little, a.k.a. Malik El Shabazz. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, as Adrian mentioned, it's, you know, it's it's a loose but mostly faithful adaptation of the book, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, as told to Alex Haley. Mm-hmm. And, and it follows Malcolm through his life as a kid, a young man, a young criminal, a uh, drug dealer, a uh, a drug, uh, drug addict, hustler, and then to becoming a minister in the Nation of Islam, as well as a human rights activist, and then finally to his assassination on February 21st in 1965 yeah. at the uh, Audubon Ballroom in Manhattan. And, by the way, February 21st is my mother's birthday. I just realized that as I'm reading this. But Oh, wow. Mm. Um, but, man, let's talk about the craft of the movie first and foremost. Uh, Absolutely. Because... That's what I really took away from this. You know, I agree with you that Spike, from the very beginning of his career, he's he's very aptly handled ensemble casts from She's Gotta Have It, Do the Right Thing, yeah. Mo' Better Blues, you know, really almost all of his movies. He almost never tells movies with just one or two or three or four characters, and that's yeah, it. Yeah, School Days, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all that way, but the craft of the movie to me was so, that was the part that was so, like, enriching in this rewatch you know, that opening crane shot in the beginning 
where they're in the city and they, they, you see the uh, the train on the elevated platform and then the, the crane comes down and the cameraman is on the crane, but the, the camera is strapped to him. So the crane comes down, the shot comes down to the street. He steps off of the crane and then the camera moves into the area where Spike as Shorty is getting his shoes shined. And it's so smooth. It's so it's seamless. Super, yes, perfect. And you see the cars whizzing by him, you know, careful not to hit him. And then uh, Spike's character gets up and then the camera turns around and follows him across the street. And I was just it was just breathtaking, but it totally sets the tone for the epic nature of the tale. And I was thinking, like watching it, was like, okay, if this had been done today, they would have stitched stitched it together digitally and did this part over here and then that part over there. And, you know, when the lens flare of the sun hit the camera, that's where they would stitch it. And you'd be like, okay, just the fact that it was one shot, you could feel it. I'm following these characters through this world. It was just wonderful, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I and, you know, it, it's a testament to like that. I hate to say classic filmmaking because, you know, just great filmmaking is just great filmmaking, period. But there there is a, a craft, you know, as you're mentioning to that, you know, and, you know, one of the other things that, you know, Spike mentioned um, it be in, in his preparation to make, you know, the movie is that him and um, Ernest Dickerson, they um, as a, a, a bit of inspiration, uh, they, they caught there was a, a re-release of Lawrence of Arabia. Um, right. They're in New York right. City around that time that they were preparing to make the film and they went to saw it and it was a restored print, you know, 70 millimeter, whatever it is. And they were just like, wow, this is the scope that we want to approach this movie with. And I thought there were several scenes like not only obviously when, you know, Malcolm goes to Egypt and he makes his um his uh, Hodge um, back to the mother, back not back to the motherland. That's the wrong term. Um, back to Mecca. His Mecca. Thank Mecca. you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he makes the Hodge back to Mecca. His journey, his pilgrimage. You know, obviously in those scenes, you know, that's the first time really that Western filmmakers have been allowed to even film there. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, but even the parts where you know Malcolm um, has the um, has the uh, rallies and there's one that's a callback to um, Citizen Kane as well. You know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, where he's on the podium with the with the the panels behind him. Uh, no, and 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 you've got all of the uh, the Nation of Islam, the women in white. Uh, yeah, you got the, the brothers in suits, and you got the, yes. uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, oh, exactly. Man, breathtaking. Yes, breathtaking. It it, it it calls upon Citizen Kane, but also the scope of it. You really get worked up into the scene itself, you know what I'm saying? By the cadence of Malcolm's speeches, by um, Denzel's performance, you know, and also by um, 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 Al Freeman's performance as Elijah Muhammad as well. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't even have to say much, just like Elijah Muhammad, you know, in actuality, but just by his presence. It, it's, it's, it's striking, how much he looked like the actual Elijah Muhammad. You know what I'm saying? And so all of that coalesced into this vision that is still so striking and just like, wow, wow, just just incredible, man. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the honorable Elijah Muhammad. Look, so sounding like fake Yoda, yo. <laughs> <laughs> now you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, 
I was cracking up. I was like, was he really like this? But I, I've, I have heard recordings of uh, of him speaking. But yeah, man, uh, like you said, the obvious would be the uh, this you know his pilgrimage or his uh, his trip to Mecca. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, the studio, and you know, we'll talk about some of the uh, the problems that they had with this with Warner Brothers in terms of the studio and the budget and, and what they wanted them to do and what they didn't want them to do. But um, but there was even a point where the studio was like, look, we can't afford to send you to Egypt. Let's just shoot it in Atlantic City and let's just uh, do a matte painting of the uh, pyramids in the background. What? Man, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's crazy, man. But staying with the uh, the look of the film, man, Let's talk a little bit more about, uh, or just real quick touch on uh, our our friend and, and former guest Ernest Dickerson's photography and DP choices, which were breathtaking. Yes, the 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 scene when Malcolm is in prison and he's in solitary confinement and it's all black and you can sometimes see like little pinholes of light. Yeah, and then they open like a little door, like almost like a like a like a just wide enough to get like a plate through, and then the light shines through, and you can see Denzel the just the uh, the uh, shaft of light hit his face, and then it closes, and then there was another point where they opened, and then they finally opened the door. It was like, oh my goodness, that um, some of the uh, 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 the the use of like blues and silhouette, like when Malcolm. And Shorty are in the bedroom and they're planning the robbery and you got the Venetian blinds behind them and it's, it's just a wash in blue. And they're talking about the other uh, robbery that's coming up. And then when uh, Malcolm and Betty are in the house and they're fearing for their lives. And that one, too, is, is this, you know, a lot good nighttime shot washed in blue, you know, just gives you that serene sense of, you know, the whole world's quiet and still. But just just fantastic choices. Now, another thing I was going to say, too, um, and, and I don't know if this was intentional, but all the scenes with um, when they were in Elijah Muhammad's uh, office and his home, it almost it almost calls upon Gordon Willis's cinematography for The Godfather. All these browns mm. and everything's dark, Venetian mm-hmm. blinds, you know what I'm saying? Um, and if you recall the look of that film, it was it was kind of like that. You know, when they would go into uh, Don Corleone's, you know, office and the uh, environs of, you know, the Corleone home, you know what I'm saying? No, you, you're exactly right. Yeah. The, the, the rich earth, earth tones, the, the browns and the deep greens. And then also, too, in the beginning of The Godfather, the Don has on a black suit and he's sitting behind the desk kind of perched. Yes. And that was the same same way with the, there was one shot at one point in the movie where Elijah Muhammad is behind the desk and the camera's in front of his desk. And there are some items placed on the desk to kind of create kind of Frame a, a framing of his face. Yes, and then, mm-hmm. and then he's got the uh, he's got the uh, the horizontal blinds uh, behind him. Just f- fantastic filmmaking, man. Really incredible. Yeah. Um, and I I really liked um, also too. And and uh, uh, there's a point in the movie in the third act where everybody's getting these harassing phone calls and these threatening phone calls because this is it's ultimately there's a sense of dread in the movie because we're all, we're ultimately leading to uh to Malcolm's uh his end but it's so thrilling and so tense and there's a point where Malcolm's in a hotel room and he calls uh he calls Betty on the phone he's talking to her yeah and the camera starts on Malcolm at the bed and then it turns around in the room and it swirls around to a mirror on the wall, and then you see Malcolm sitting on the bed, and you see, and, you, and it focuses on his reflection, and then the camera defocuses on the background to the foreground, 
and there's a lamp in the foreground, and you see the listening device that the uh, the CIA or the FBI have put in the in the uh, hotel room. Just great, man. man. Just absolutely great. Yeah. I, I I really loved it, man. And then of course later in the movie, you know, Spike Lee's trademark, you know, slow motion conveyor belt shot, you know, with <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know with, <laughs> But but it works though. I mean, then you got Sam Cook playing over it. Mm-hmm. A change gonna come. You just really get the sense of like, oh man, it's in, it's it's in, it's inexorable. The, mm-hmm. What's going to happen is going to happen. Even Malcolm, you know, in actuality, you know, really said that he may have to become a martyr. You know, and uh, it was just like, yeah, the, the the pull towards that particular destiny, unfortunately, was inexor- inexorable. And it ended the way that it ended, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. It did, and um, he even says that. And and obviously, I, I suspect there was some artistic license, but you know, Denzel says that right before he goes out to make his uh his speech at the uh, Audubon Ballroom. He says, you know, this is a time for martyrs or something like that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they do kind of acknowledge that. But anyway, I do think, man, that um. Yeah, you're right, man. All all those callbacks to classic films like Citizen Kane, uh, like Birth of a Nation, um, like The Godfather. I mean, it just goes to show Spike Lee's him as a as a student of film and as an appreciator of film uh, and as a uh, as someone who wants to make, you know, great cinema. And I think he he definitely achieved it with this uh, with this movie. But I had a couple of quick points of interest I was going to mention. Uh, one was that opening scene at the beginning in the uh, barbershop with the conk. <laughs> Bees and cobra. Mm, mm, mm. Bees and cobra. Mm, mm. <laughs> Bees and cobra. Also, too, man, you know, Denzel has famously not had like love scenes with uh, with white actresses. Yeah, this might be the only one, yo. I believe it is. That's what and that's what makes it striking, too, because at once is we know that in actuality for Denzel, he doesn't really do that. And then also the fact that we know that this is Malcolm who admitted that, yes, in his former life, in his backsliding days, if you will, he was all about the white women, you know what I'm saying? But we know that this is Malcolm's even still. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it plays both ways. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing with the Nation of Islam, and you know, and you know how I feel about, you know, organized religion. Yeah. All yeah. religion is cultish and just sounds like horseshit to me now. Like, just... It all sounds like, oh, yeah, come away from them and be with us. Don't talk to them. You know, you got to think like us, dress like us, bring your kids here, bring your money here. You know, you're different from them. All that is just so cultish to me. And this idea of I'm going to give my own life for this man and only to find out later that, yes, he's just a man. Just just, a man. Yes. Just like anybody else. He's just a man. He's as fallible. He's just as is easy to fall into, you know, greed and anger and jealousy. And yeah. 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 I mean, and so, you know. Yeah. So, you know, the idea of, you know, ideologies maybe being a better thing to connect yourself to than people. But the cult of celebrity and stages and pedestals is just too strong. It's just when human beings see somebody elevated, we think they're special Mm -hmm. and they're not. But um, 
So Malcolm was in prison for what, 10 years, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in 10 years time, West Indian Archie went from being a big baller gangster to being hobbled by a stroke. I mean, he looked like he had aged 20 years. Hey, you 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 know how you know how strokes work. You know what I'm saying, and 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 the game, quote unquote, can age you too. Right. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Plus, plus Archie will look like he was what forty years old, and he's doing cocaine and drugs, and you know, and so forth. So yeah, it probably did take a toll on him. And like you said, you know, a stroke can uh can wither a person uh away from their their former you know robust and 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 and, and vibrant selves. But absolutely. But the other thing too, man, was uh, when when Malcolm started catching feelings for Betty. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, uh, "Let's talk about you for a while," and then proceed to ask her, "Okay, what's your age? How tall are you?" I'm like, "Okay, look, man, this ain't no job application." <laughs> yeah, but but that's one that's that that's one of the things that they that they uh, um, that Malcolm uh, mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. in, in his autobiography. He said, you know, the nation. You know, says when you're looking for a mate, you know, they have to be of the right carriage. They have to be the right height. They have to be they have to have all these like kind of requirements to find a perfect mate for you. You know what I'm saying? So, yes, I could see that reflected in that bit of dialogue. Like he's trying to get a dossier, you know, yeah. of her, just like. <laughs> and, and, and like you said, the whole time I'm listening to him, I'm like, okay, this is just more religious bullshit, but okay, all right. You, you gotta be this height, ha- half your age plus seven. <laughs> <laughs> but but, you know. but in, in, in that courtship, um, the, the part where they go to like the ice cream shop and um, he's eating like a banana split, you know, it's, it's it's kind of a we don't really associate you know kind of those lighthearted moments with Malcolm. We always have this image of like the firebrand. You know what I'm saying? Right. But reportedly, he even mentioned it in um um, um the autobiography and also in another book. Um, other people have mentioned that he had a, a a very much a sweet tooth for banana splits. Oh, really? Yeah. They they said that. Yes, uh, Brother Malcolm could eat like three banana splits in a row in one sitting. Okay. And it was just like, oh, that's cool. That's cool. So it was it was nice to see that bit of detail, you know, in that um, courtship scene, if you will. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I liked it, too. And even the courtship between he and Betty, I think, was integral to the film because the second half of the film the anchor of the film is their relationship and the push and pull between him wanting to be where he's supposed to be in terms of uh, as a human rights activist and a minister, but also as a family, as a father and as a husband. Yeah. And so the push and pull of that relationship, once he's kind of realizing that he's a marked man, then he's kind of realized, okay, now, you know, there's a chance I'm going to be killed and my children are going to be fatherless. My wife is going to be a widow, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, he's got to think about that in real time while he's living his life and going day to day. Yeah. So I thought that having those moments where they, they go to the ice cream parlor, where he proposes to her over the phone, which was still, even though it was over the phone, it was still very sweet. Uh, them visiting and going on public dates because that was something else in the uh, in the Nation of Islam, where you know they didn't have one on one dates, so they they didn't encourage that. You know, you had to go in either on group dates or in in, in public settings. Mm-hmm. But uh, they kind of discourage you from kind of doing these one on one things. And even there, you know, the day they got married, and then they you know they're in the in the back of the bedroom, and and she's calling him, oh my dear heart and my beloved. It was all just really just really lovely, man. And uh, 
I really appreciated it. But um, the last bit, man, and I, I just got to say this, man. Okay. The last five minutes with the kids and I am Malcolm X and then uh, Nelson Mandela. I, I, I know where you're going and I agree. That was because for me. Yeah. This is an epic. Don't make it a documentary or don't make it whatever. This is an epic. The only part I think that they could have kept to bridge it into the modern day was when he has those cameras sweeping across the crowds and they have the posters of Malcolm and they all have their hands in the air. Mm -hmm. That would have been a a fine punctuation to say, yeah, this person's legacy still lives on, you know, continued on. Yeah. 30 years later, 30 plus years later. But all the other stuff, I was just like, okay, that's just kind of, again, typical over the top Spike Lee. I got to make my point and then I got to make it again. And then I got to make it a third time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I have not read the autobiography of Malcolm X, and I assume you have. Yes, I've read it. Um, and in fact, I first read it about four years ago um, when I started dialysis, and um, I read it over like uh, two or three weeks while I was in dialysis, and I just was like, "Wow, what took me so long to finally read this?" So, you know, there was that. And then also a couple other books if I could recommend as well. I also recommend um, Spike Lee's um, journal um, and his screenplay of this. It's all in one book. Mm -hmm. And the title is called By Any Means Necessary, The Trials and Tribulations of the Making of Malcolm X. And and you can't miss it because it has a big silver X symbol on the front of it. You know, Mm. definitely get that. You know, if you get a chance and read that, um, it really details much like um, another uh, volume that he made on the making of Do the Right Thing. Same format. Here's a journal of how I made the film and here's the screenplay of it as well. You know what I'm saying? Both excellent books, but definitely the trials and tribulations of the making of Malcolm X. Highly recommended. And the last book that I want to recommend is a recent biography uh, that was written by author uh, Les Payne. Uh, called The Dead Are Arising. And um, the title is from a um, speech that Malcolm gave. It was a phrase that he had in one of his speeches. And that, if you read that in conjunction with the autobiography of Malcolm X, you really get a full scope of Malcolm. I mean, it was very much, very well researched. Mm. And, you know, it's it's very, very extremely well written and well done. I cannot recommend that enough. Um, so for the listeners, get all three of those books if you can. And I, I highly recommend it. You know, that's that's my seal of approval. Poon ting. <laughs> yeah man um what's funny you mentioned his journal in the uh the uh the trials and tribulations with making this film because the way the film kind of got made it was uh, a guy named david worth bought the rights to the uh to the book to make it into a film yeah and it, they had tried to do it a, a couple of times before spike lee got to it but it ended up in the hands of Warner Brothers, and at one point, uh, Academy Award winner Norman Jewison was gonna uh, was gonna make this movie. That's right. Uh, and Jewison had done In the Heat of the Night, and he'd done some other other films. Uh, what are some other other films by Jewison? Uh, he's done um, Rollerball. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> but but, but, I'm, but I'm what about the good movies? I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, hey, I like Rollerball. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> but but no, I, I can see why. Oh oh, a soldier's story. That's what it is. Yeah, that's yeah, what I'm trying yeah. to think of. So like he had done movies, you know, that were um, of social conscience and featured a black cast, but 
Spike went to him and convinced him that, hey, you know, I really should be the one to make this movie. And whatever the talks that they had, you know, um, uh, Jewison rescinded and agreed that Lee should be the one to do it. And they went forward with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Spike actually went in public first and started talking about it in interviews and uh, and whatnot. And then eventually it got to Jewish. And, and according to Spike, he says, really and truly, he says, if Norman Jewison thought he was he could do a good job with this movie, he wouldn't have backed down. Mm. He said, but he ultimately probably felt like, yeah, I probably wouldn't do this as much justice as this guy. And that was part of part of the reason why he he, uh, you know, he gave it up. And then Spike took it over and Spike rewrote the original script by Arnold Pearl. And kind of recrafted it into his version of Malcolm X. Uh, and that was his big thing is, is this is going to be my vision of Malcolm X. This is Malcolm X through my lens, through his particular style of filmmaking, through his use of jazz as, as a score for the film uh, and, and, and all of it uh, for sure. And, and another thing, too, you know, I, I think, you know, had Jewison, you know, um, pursued you know, the further making of the film, you know, under his stead, um, mm-hmm. he would have had to go through like the Nation of Islam. And Spike, you know, tells about his challenges and interactions with the nation. You know, in particular, there was one meeting that he had with um, uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan, you know, in Chicago. He went to Farrakhan's home and Farrakhan wanted to meet him and was like, Okay, so so I hear that you're you know trying to produce a film of Malcolm X, and Spike gives a blow by blow, you know, so to speak, of their conversation, and it's punctuated by Farrakhan making a not so veiled, not threat, not it's gonna be trouble, but he just said, just do it right. That's all I'm gonna tell you. Just do it right, and if you don't do it right, right. You will know, and he left it at that. Okay, and it's just like, all right. <laughs> ah, ah. <laughs> well, but you know, funny enough, you know, Spike Lee is is a very, uh, very famous uh, Brooklynite, and people living in his neighborhood were telling him when he was making the film, "Don't mess up, Malcolm. Don't mess it up." Yeah, you know, they they were telling him, you know, to get it right. But um, so yeah, you're you're exactly right, and. So Warner Brothers is going to produce the film. They gave him too small of a, bud- a budget out, to the, out of the gate, according to Spike. And so because Spike told him, look, this movie is going to be at least three hours. Mm. Like he really wanted to go the Lawrence of Arabia route, like literally. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, well, you haven't even written the screenplay yet. How, how do you know it's going to be three hours? And he's like, I'm telling you, the kind of tale that I'm going to tell, it's going to be three hours. And so he and the studio butted, butted heads from the very beginning they felt like Spike might end up going over budget, so they ended up inserting what's called a completion bond on the film. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, and so that's a way of kind of putting restraints on the filmmaker. And if it goes over budget, then the bond company has to assume the the uh, the debt. I think beyond whatever the uh, the original uh, uh, budget for the film is. And so there was a lot of back and forth. Of course, they go over budget. Spike is worried. The crew's worried. The producers are worried. They're not sure if they're going to be able to finish the film. Spike presses on. I think he gets uh, some advice from Francis Ford Coppola, who tells him to get the film pregnant, which apparently means go so far into production that they have to spend the money to finish it. 
Mm. You know, once once you're five or six months pregnant, you're pretty much in for the next three to four months, and then the baby's here. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, get the film pregnant. Go get as far into it as you possibly can. Like in other words, don't stop on the front end. So that's what Spike did, and they still did end up. You know, Warner Brothers did end up cutting off financing, and so Spike, um, he went in the press and he started talking about that. Um, he ended up uh, going to some very famous friends and celebrities who, who who were wealthy and asking them for help. Bill Cosby donated money. Oprah Winfrey, Janet Jackson, Magic Johnson, hey, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan yeah. and others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They all donated money to help the movie get finished. And it wasn't like, oh, this is an investment. You're not going to get a credit on the film. You're not going to get I can't pay you your money back. He's basically going hat in hand asking for a gift. And they all gave it to him because they knew how much this film meant to him and to everybody who was expecting it. Um, And probably, too, thinking that, okay, the suits are not stepping up to help this filmmaker. Let me step up and help him. And then Spike ended up throwing a press conference uh, at Schaumburg, I think, some in New York. And then eventually they ended up getting funding back and they finished the movie and they shot in Egypt. And did all of the things that they uh, that they wanted to do and took the proper amount of time to edit the film so that the finished product would match, you know, the heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears that they had poured into the uh, the production. But yeah, um, just just crazy, man. Just crazy. Since you read the uh, the uh, the autobiography, man, how what what was what are one or two uh, uh, similarities or differences? Let's say one or two differences. What are one or two differences? Between the uh, the book and then the adapted film, uh, well, obviously the the biggest the biggest difference is, of course, you know, and I see why um, Spike had to make this extrapolation, so to speak, if that's even a proper term. Um, the assassins, mm-hmm. okay, the whole thing about the assassins. Now, um, it, I, obviously, this is before his death. I think the book was published after uh, Malcolm's, you know, death. But in the book, The Dead Are Rising, there is tremendous research done into the background of the assassins. And they all came from one particular temple, Nation of Islam temple, temple number seven, that was known, unfortunately, that was renowned to have like (laughs) thugs, like just these like these dudes (laughs) is just like, yo, don't mess with temple number seven. They're in the nation, but they still got those ways. You know what I'm saying? And most of those assassins came from there. And where, where Spike had in the film, you know, he had the, like, like, like the cadre of them, you know, locking up and just, you know, clicking. I don't know why they're sitting in the basement. Just, I, something like that is so cliche. Okay, we get ready to do this thing. We got our table full of guns and we just going to sit down here for two hours clacking, checking the action, the bolt action on these guns. No, Who no. does that? <laughs> no, it's absolutely cliche to the point for anybody who's not seen the film. They're in a dark basement yeah. with, with, you know, with cinder blocks around them. There's like, there's like the light overhead hanging over a table. <laughs> they're like, both, like he said, he, they're working the action on the guns, and then they all stop and like, you know, practice aiming at the same time. Like, at who exactly? <laughs> at what? Like, like they get ready to take over a small country. Like they, like they're the dogs of war or something. Like they mercenaries. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yo. <laughs> 
It but, really was. It really was like they might as well have had like a like a like a blueprint on the table that said the master plan. <laughs> <laughs> even though even though Spike did do a good job of showing them kind of casing out, doing reconnaissance, if you will, on the Audubon. Right. You know. And here's another here's another cliche, but unfortunately, it always works though. If you're going to have a movie about the turbulent 60s, you must, it's in writing, you must have Junior Walker's shotgun playing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You have to. You must. Yeah. It's the needle drop of needle drops, sir, for that that type of of film. Exactly. Exactly. So that's the immediate thing, you know, that I noticed. It's like, okay, Spike is working with the information that was available at that point you know what i'm saying um probably through interviews with you know some of the um mem- members of that particular temple uh temple number seven and what was out there you mm-hmm. know what i'm saying um and then another thing as well is um they never explain in the film there's a there's a piece of dialogue you might remember where one of the prisoners says um or even malcolm himself says yeah my, my name is not satan anymore and I know I can see people say, why did he say that? He nobody ever called him Satan. Right. In the autobiography, he mentions that when he went to prison, he was just so anti everything. He was like just over it, like fuck life, fuck everything. I don't care no more. Like he became a monster by his own, uh, you know, his own account. And so the other prisoners thought he was so evil and so just in it that they were just like, man, that dude, Satan right there. And they took to call him Satan before his reformation and before his conversion, you know, into the, into the nation. You know what I'm saying? So um, I wish they would have um, expanded upon that and maybe shown like, you know, while he was in prison, like, yeah, this dude is just, yeah, he's really at his lowest peak, you know, but they illustrated that when he went to solitary. So that was probably the scene that did that, you know. Yeah, yeah, they 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 really didn't um they really didn't bring that point uh uh to home like they could have in the movie cuz there's mm-hmm. even a point um and you know some of the other actors in the movie one of them was Christopher Plummer who plays the uh the chaplain in the prison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he he asks a question and then he's in, in or he says does anybody have any questions and then you know Denzel as Malcolm raises his hand and he says, "Oh, I guess we're going to hear from Satan." Oh, that's what it was. Thank yeah. you. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He acknowledges it. It not acknowledges it there, and so, uh, so yeah. There's there's definitely uh, there was definitely that that thing that followed him, I guess, uh, through his life. But as far as Denzel's performance, man, mm. you know, obviously Denzel doesn't necessarily look like Malcolm X. Looks like, yeah. But he's tall, like you know Malcolm was. Um, he's clean cut and good looking. Looks good in a goatee. Yeah. Uh the glasses definitely brought it. Uh he's certainly darker darker complected than uh than than uh than Malcolm, than Malcolm was. Yeah. But I think for, to a great extent he did give you the spirit of Malcolm without doing an imitation. You know what I mean? Right. Yes. Which is always what I hear actors, not all actors, sometimes they are like a guy like, you know, uh Jamie Foxx playing Ray Charles. He's kind of doing a straight up imitation of Ray Charles. He's not Mm-hmm. He's not trying to live and breathe Ray Charles per se. At least I didn't get that sense. But Denzel was giving you the vibe. He's giving you the spirit. He's giving you the the kind of the heart of the man. And in places, you know, he would kind of, you know, make sure he got the speech pattern and 
and, and some of the places, even some of the places where his voice cracked in speeches where, you know, where Malcolm's voice was recorded. He even got that right, uh, which I thought was uh, was 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 really cool. And I loved Angela Bassett as uh, as Betty Shabazz. Yes, she's such a good actor. Uh, the scene where you know she and Malcolm are arguing at the house, and she's saying, "Hey, look, um, you know, you're you know," and it's it's one of those things where in a marriage, you know, there are going to be times where you're going to disagree on something, and it's going to be about some, something something or someone that's important to the other person. Mm-hmm. And you just got to tell them like it is. These people are not your friends. You can't see that they're turning on you. Yeah. I hear I hear the whispers in the temple. I hear the whispers in service. I hear the whispers amongst the brothers and the other ministers. They're turning on you. And you've got to open your eyes and be prepared for it. So that whole argument that they had, I thought was a great opportunity for them to give Betty Shabazz or, or Angela Bassett more to do as Betty Shabazz in the movie. And I thought she killed it. And of course, you know, later on, she absolutely kills it as, uh, as Tina Turner and, uh, and what's love got to do with it. You know, I got one, one small point, uh, just a little, just a little off, off topic, but you were talking about portrayals, you know, mm-hmm. it is a point of contention with me that, okay, every time they cast Martin Luther King in a movie, they just like, let's just get just any black actor. And just get them. Like, Anthony Mackie is Martin Luther King? No. No. He was in a he was in an LBJ movie with um, Brian Cranston, who played LBJ, and they cast him as Martin Luther King. I'm like, Really? Yes. Yes. Okay. I was like, oh, come on, come on. And there was there was a couple others that I'm just like, it's not necessarily going back to what what we're saying with, you know, Denzel's portrayal of Malcolm. You don't necessarily have to look exactly like the person, exactly like the subject to get the point mm-hmm. across. But <clears throat> there is a certain point where you just can't you just can't get just anybody to do this role. I mean, I'm sure there were budgetary constraints and all this stuff. But at the time, you know, going back to the movie. At the time with Denzel, it was the right time. He was the right age in his ascension. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. Just everything. Like nobody else could have done it. And especially to me, where it was especially striking is once he started his pilgrimage and he started getting his goatee, and you start really seeing his conversion, you know, once he goes to Egypt and makes his pilgrimage into like just more about you know human rights and being involved with this human family mm-hmm. you know within you know islam as well and you see him drinking from the same cup and it's, it's just wonderful like it's I, I don't know about you but it was touching to see his portrayal of malcolm and he's there and he's interacting with other you know other races and everything and, and he's and he's smiling a bit i always love those pictures of you know, Malcolm, you know, smiling where you can see mm-hmm. like the joy, the, the rare, you know, instances of joy. He's interacting. It's like, wow, that's that's wonderful. And that came across in his portrayal, you know, once he made his pilgrimage. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, it's no, great. I, I, I love that as well. And I actually got a little uh, I got a little uh, misty, man. Yep. You know, when yep. he was talking to the people and he was laughing and he was kind of embarrassed because he's. You know, he's the stranger in a strange land, and yet they're all very interested in him and asking him, you know, what who is he and where is he from? Oh, you're from Harlem? And he's trying to tell them how to pronounce Harlem, and they're trying to pronounce it with an Arabic uh, yes. kind of inflection. And he's, no, no, not Harlem. 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 No, 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 not Harlem. You know, 
Uh, yeah, it was just that was just great. And like you said, seeing the character and Denzel's portrayal of the character going through this kind of illumination, you know, this kind of uh, uh, eye-opening experience, which was punctuated by that incredible widescreen shot where he's in what I assume is a church or a temple, and there are oh, like yeah. hundreds of lights over his head, and they're they're all kind of like in uh, in circles or uh, uh, overlapping circles or whatever. Yes. And then he's kind of in the center on this carpet, and it's just like, oh, just an incredible, incredible shot. Oh, it's great. And then Denzel actually speaking in, you know, the uh, in, in Arabic, you know, he's praying in Arabic uh, at that point. It's just just lovely stuff, man. But to end it, man, you're talking about uh, like all the actors who, you know, play and having any black actor to play uh, Martin Luther King. So I was thinking like, you know, <laughs> Eddie Griffin as Marcus Garvey. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Morris Chestnut as George Washington Carver, you know. <laughs> Wait a minute, what? What are we doing? You know, uh, a fun place to end. And I don't know how many of these you've actually seen. I've seen almost all of them. Okay. Quite a few actors have portrayed Malcolm X on the big and small screen. Oh yeah, like like who? Okay, so if you go back to the greatest with Muhammad Ali, James Earl Jones played Malcolm X. What? What? Sir, a young James Earl Jones played Malcolm X. Um, <laughs> in this movie, Al Freeman Jr. plays the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, but on Roots, he played Malcolm X. Huh. Damn, I don't remember that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Gary Dordan, Dordan, I think is his name. Yes. Oh. Yeah. In the TV movie, he yeah. played him. Joe Morton played him in a TV movie. Dang. Okay. Uh, Mario Van Peebles played him in uh, in uh, in Michael Mann's Ali. That's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then last and more recently in uh, One Night in Miami, uh, Kingsley Benadier played Malcolm X. And then mm. you know there were other actors who played like Sam Cooke and and Ali and so forth. Man. Yeah. This is a character who, certainly despite his historical importance, you know, as a human rights activist and as a, as a minister and as you know. Uh, as a as a famous black you know public figure, he he there has been oh and then there's another actor who portrays Malcolm. I've not seen the show, but on uh uh, uh what's the show with uh, uh Forrest Whitaker Harlem Gangster Gangster of Harlem or oh uh, Godfather of Harlem Godfather of Harlem. There's an actor on that show who plays Malcolm. Hmm. And they actually, he actually interacts with uh, with Forrest Whitaker's character, who's based on uh, not Frank Lucas, but uh, oh no, oh no, <laughs> Bumpy Johnson, Bumpy Johnson. No, no, Bumpy Johnson. That was way before, uh, not, and not Frank Matthews. See, see, we just going down the list of black gangsters. All, all, <laughs> all of them. All of them. You right. You right. You right. I, I think. I think Hollywood and I think filmmakers, particularly, and you know, it's, it's kind of a bit of Forrest Gump, uh-huh. where it's like if you're going to set something in a certain period of time, like even in this film, you know, Malcolm is in Harlem. He's in a jazz club, and then they have uh, uh, Billie Holiday and her band on stage performing. Who was actually? Uh, do you know who the singer was? Yes, Mickey Howard. Yep, yep, yep. Mickey yes, Howard is playing uh, Billie Holiday, and she was actually a good choice because she she looks like she, mm-hmm, and she, she looks can like sing. her, and she could sing, and she was a big fan of uh, of Billie Holiday as a uh, as a singer. So that was a that was a perfect choice. But um, 
yeah, man, just I don't know. I'll give you the last word on on this on this movie, man. In in terms of uh, whatever. All right. What I would say is, if you've never seen Malcolm X, um, before you see the movie, I would always recommend read the autobiography and definitely check out um, the other book, the other um, biography, The Dead Are Rising. And that will give you a good basis, a good grounding, you know, before you see the film. And then when you do finally see the film, just really take in and keep in the back of your head the craft that went into it, the time that it was made in, in actuality. And just the, the intent of the movie. And I think to close it out, really, I think people all throughout, um, uh, I, since his death, since um, Malcolm's death, have always had this one view of Malcolm. And that's, you know, this public persona um, that's been cultivated, you know, by you know, history and everything that, oh, he was this firebrand and, you know, he was all about, you know, um, um, black supremacy, ex- mm-hmm. black supremacy. That's a better, mm-hmm. that's a better term. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? He wasn't, he wasn't, you know, for, you know, integration, just all these other things. And, oh, and, and, and the worst is, is just, you know, for comic fans, well, well, you know, the comparison is Magneto was Malcolm X and Professor X was Martin Luther King. Oh, yeah. Stop that <laughs> bullshit. Stop it. Stop it. The, the ne- next person who say that, they get back slapped because that's because <laughs> that's not that's not that's, that that doesn't work anymore. That does not work anymore. Yeah. Who Malcolm was. And, you know, when you get the full scope of him, you know, and unless we were actually there during that time and with him, you know, or amongst his family, we will never know the full scope, the inner workings of this man. But. At the same time, don't let history dictate to you what this man is. You find out yourself through this film, through the books. You find out who Malcolm X was, Malik Al-Shabazz. You find out who he was. You know what I'm saying? Because he's more than just the slogans. He's more than just the speeches. This was a man. And this was a man that worked and gave his life, unfortunately, you know, for the betterment of not just us as black people, as African-Americans, or as he would say, so-called African-Americans, the so-called Negro. But eventually it was for the betterment of all humanity. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And I said I was going to give you the last word, but I will say. No, come on. You're good. But I will say this, that to your point that, you know, in watching this film and, you know, it really is broken up into three portions, you know, him as a young man. Yeah. Him as as in the nation of Islam and his ascension and then eventually, you know, the end of toward the end of his life. But the thing that this film so brilliantly brings across for somebody who doesn't know who Malcolm is, is. Certainly not a, a perfect man, certainly uh, a complicated figure as far as historically speaking. Some of the things that he said, you know, uh, a lot of people were not really good with black and white people. You know, there were people who really thought, like you said, he was about separation. And for a certain period of, of his life, that's what he was. That's what the Nation of Islam was pushing. But yes, mm-hmm. the good thing that the one of the, the great things that the film brings across is the fact that we get to see a human being who is not perfect, change. Mm -hmm. We get to see someone get more information, have their mind be opened, have more experiences, and say, wow, the the way I thought before was not correct. I need to change. And we see him change twice. We see him change from a criminal to the minister, and then we see him go from the minister 
to the human rights activists. And so, you know, there are quite a few figures in history who people who died young, people who were killed young, people who, you know, we have complicated relationships with now and we never got a chance to see them get older and have more experiences and change. Mm -hmm. So this is this movie does a a, does a, a, a tremendous job of presenting, you know, a whole human being and a whole person. I think that's one of the one of the things that really makes it worthwhile for someone to sit down and watch for the three hours and 20 minutes that it is. It's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. Cause I don't know what's up there beyond the sky. It's been a long, a long that concludes this episode of Sidebar Forever, hosted by Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson. You can find us online at sidebarforever.com. Any emails or questions can be directed to us at sidebarforever at gmail.com. And also, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram.